Amen, amen. Well, good morning. It's another beautiful day that the Lord has blessed us with. I want to thank you all for being here this morning, uh, but especially to our visitors. If you're here with us for the first time, welcome. If there are any questions that you may have or anything that you may need, uh, please ask one of our wonderful members. They'd be more than happy to assist you. Uh, even afterwards, after service, find myself, maybe Pastor Tyler, or Pastor Gabe, we'd be more than happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you for choosing to worship here with us this morning. Listen, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 3. We will be uh, continuing in our study in the gospel according to St. John. We will begin this morning with chapter 3. We'll be working through verses 1 through 8. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you don't have a Bible with you and you need one, there are some on the table back here to my left, which would be your right. Uh, feel free to grab one. That's our gift to you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love for you to have one. Let's begin. John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not, do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you are glorious. You're the creator of all things. All that we see and all that we are is because of you, the sovereign God, the great creator. God, before me this morning, I have an incredible task to preach on a text that is just so profound, so heavy. Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work in this place this morning, humbling us, helping us to see what we cannot see on our own. Father, I pray that your spirit would rest upon me to preach boldly and courageously, yet humbly as well. Father, open our eyes and our hearts to receive the truth of these verses this morning. Father, we are dependent upon the spirit to work. So, Father, I pray that you would show up here this morning and do what only you can do. And it would be to the praise and glory of your name alone. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Listen, so as human beings, we like to change things, don't we? We have the ability to change things even, right? If there's something that doesn't meet a particular standard, we like to exercise the freedom that we have to make a particular change. I think one of the best places that we see this demonstrated is through home ownership, right? I want you to think about when you walk into a home and consider purchasing it. And the way that the current owners have it set up is very nice. But what you see is the things that you would like to do, the changes that you would like to make there. You know, I think about my own home. God has blessed me and my family with a wonderful home that we are very grateful for, very thankful for. But there are a lot of things that we would like to change. There are a lot of, there are a lot of updates that we would like to make. Now, some of those updates I can do myself, right? I can do the landscaping. I can do all of the painting. That's not a problem. I can even do some of the minor masonry work. But there are certain things that I just cannot do, right? I am not an electrician by any stretch of the imagination. I am scared, terrified to fry myself. So I can't do any of the electrical work at my house, right? I know nothing about plumbing. So I can't do any of that work at my house either. The foundational work that needs to be addressed, I can't do any of that. It's simply beyond my means. So there are things that need to be changed in our home, but I don't have the ability to change them. See, as we look at the text before us this morning, we learn that there is a change within every man that is required. There's something that must be done, but it is beyond our capabilities. You see, these verses present us with an incredibly challenging reality, that the entrance into the kingdom of God requires a change that must come from outside of ourselves. See, this change is something we cannot do. It requires a supernatural work. You see, in John chapter 3, we find Jesus having this conversation with one of the religious leaders of the day, this teacher of Israel, a man named Nicodemus. Jesus informs this man that there is indeed something that must transpire, but it is totally out of his, Nicodemus's control. There's a mandatory transformation that must take place, but Nicodemus has zero ability to bring about this change. You see, our discussion this morning centers around the topic of regeneration. What the Lord Jesus calls in verse 3 is being born again. You see, I've titled this sermon, You Must Be Born Again. And I know for some of you sitting here this morning, you say, well, that was pretty low-hanging fruit. That's a pretty simple sermon title. You didn't have to think very hard about that one. And you're absolutely right. I didn't have to ponder on the title of this sermon very long. You see, when examining this text, it quickly becomes evident that Jesus' statement here in verse 3 is the crucial point to this particular passage of Scripture. It's the main theme. It's the driving force behind these verses. The necessity of regeneration. You see, the doctrine of regeneration is a foundational part of understanding the sinner's salvation. This is a subject of incredible 
importance. And because it's of a foundational nature, this is a subject that is worthy of our time and attention. This is a topic of discussion that is vitally important, and here's why. Because the Lord Jesus says that the new birth is a requirement for any man or woman to enter into the kingdom. It's unavoidable. It's obligatory. For those that seek to enter into the kingdom of God, it is absolutely necessary. That is what gives this topic of discussion such incredible weight. That the Son of God in no uncertain terms puts forth regeneration as absolutely mandatory. Brothers and sisters, it's important that we get this right. Here's the reality, and it's an unfortunate reality. There are many who fancy themselves as born again who are not. There are many who bear the name Christian while never experiencing the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So as we have this discussion this morning, I think it would serve us well to do a couple of things, to first examine ourselves, to first look into our own hearts and do an honest inventory of our own lives, that we would be able to say with great sincerity and conviction, praise be to God, I have indeed been born again. But secondly, if you are here this morning and you have not been born again. You have not experienced the realities of the new birth. My hope is that the Lord would use this time, the teaching of his word to quicken you, to renew your heart, to bring you from death to life to the very, for the very first time. That is my aim. That is my desire. I think that is what is being communicated here in this text. That's the goal, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of dead men. See, as we look at the verses before us this morning, I have a simple outline, just three points, three things I want us to take away from these verses. Now, there are other subpoints and applications we'll make along the way, but if you're taking notes, these will be our three headings. Number one, the dilemma of Nicodemus. The dilemma of Nicodemus. Number two, the declaration of Jesus. The declaration of Jesus. Finally, number three is the duty of the Spirit. The duty of the Spirit. So with that framework in mind, let's jump in and walk through these verses together. So let's read. I'll read verses one and two. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So chapter 3 begins with this man named Nicodemus visiting Jesus under the cover of darkness. Well, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. Who is this Nicodemus, and why does he come to Jesus? What do we know about this gentleman? Well, from the text, it tells us he is of the Pharisees. Now, for those who may not be familiar, a little bit of background about the Pharisees. They were an elite religious group, right? In fact, the word Pharisees is derived from the Hebrew word that means separate. So they were separated. They were the separate 
ones. They had marked themselves off from the rest of the Jews because of their passion and their zeal for the law and the scriptures and all of these customs and traditions, including ones that they created themselves. So they were separate. They had great influence and were highly revered amongst the people, even though they looked down on the people with contempt and disdain. You see, they likely had studied the scriptures to a T. They had memorized all of the Old Testament. They regularly tithed. They were in the temple teaching. They prayed and they fasted constantly. These men were considered to be the best of the best amongst God's people. So the text tells us that this man, Nicodemus, was a member of this group. And not only that, but verse 1 tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And if you don't know what the Sanhedrin is, it was a special council responsible for governing Israel, right, under the authority of Rome. So the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 members, and these men would have come from uh, priestly lineages. They would have been former priests. They would have been made up of scribes and experts of the law, right? Being a part of the Sanhedrin was an even greater accomplishment than just being a Pharisee. So being a Pharisee was great, but if you make it within the Sanhedrin, man, you're really at the top of your game. You're the best of the best. You truly are elite amongst the people. So this is this man, Nicodemus, that comes to Jesus. What else do we know about the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin? When reading through the Gospels and even the book of Acts, we find that these religious leaders were extremely opposed to Jesus Christ and his followers. At every turn, they confronted the Lord Jesus opposing him, looking to trap him in some way so that they could bring charges against him. Their goal was to be rid of Jesus, this man who continued to indict them over and over again, this man from Nazareth who put himself on the same level as God. They wanted him gone. They openly opposed Christ. And that's probably the reason why Nicodemus comes to Jesus here under the cover of darkness. It's why he comes to Jesus at nighttime so that nobody can see him, right? If they catch uh, Nicodemus visiting with Jesus here, he could lose his position in the Sanhedrin. He could lose his status amongst the Pharisees. Not only that, but it could be misconstrued as somehow the Sanhedrin is sending their approval of Jesus. And that certainly was not the case. That is why we believe that Nicodemus comes to him under the cover of dark. That makes sense, right? Either way, it's not necessarily important when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. What's important is why Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Verse 2 again, it says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. And notice that Nicodemus calls Jesus Rabbi which means teacher. Why is this significant? Well, if you jump down to verse 10, which we'll talk about more next week, if you jump down to verse 10, you'll see that Nicodemus is known as the teacher of Israel. Now, notice it says he's not just a teacher. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. That means he was the go-to guy. He knew the scriptures better than anybody else. But yet he acknowledges the authority of Jesus as far as his teaching ability. He acknowledges Jesus as a greater teacher than himself. 
He says, you are a teacher come from God. Well, Nicodemus had it almost right. Jesus wasn't a teacher come from God. He was God come to teach. And Nicodemus would soon realize that. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand that something's happening here with Nicodemus. Something is leading this man, this Pharisee, this great leader amongst the people to pursue this conversation with Jesus. If you recall back in chapter 2, verse 23, there were many who were up at the Passover and they saw all the signs that Jesus was doing and they believed in his name. Now, if you were here last week, you know that Pastor Gabe explained to us that's not genuine saving faith. Not all of those professions were legitimate. And so what I think we have here is something similar, what Nicodemus says here. He's obviously seen the signs that Jesus is doing, so he believes something about Jesus. He just doesn't believe in Jesus yet. If you know the story of Nicodemus, you know how it ends. So all these things are happening, these signs that Jesus is performing, the teaching of Jesus, the commotion and the turbulence that this man from Nazareth is generating, it's all made Nicodemus very uneasy. And it's caused him to begin to question some things in his own life. So here is this man that on the surface, he has everything going for him. Again, he's a ruler of the Jews, esteemed amongst the people, a member of the Pharisees, which means he was most likely very wealthy. Nicodemus probably had everything he needed. He was a devoutly religious man, committed to following the letter of the law. Externally, he had all the things. He had done all the stuff. I mean, what else could he need? But he's beginning to realize that something is missing. Something is off. He knew that he needed something more. You see, though his religious practices were immaculate, his heart was empty. Here's a man that, externally speaking, he couldn't have lived a better life. An exemplary Jew, one who followed the letter of the law. But apart from this new life, apart from the new birth, he's just as far from God as the drunkard and the prostitute. His heart hadn't been changed. See, this is what really makes Nicodemus the perfect person for Jesus to have this conversation with. As a Pharisee, he believed that his religious practices made him right with God. He thought memorizing the scriptures and teaching in the temple daily and faithfully giving his tithe and uh, Fasting and prayer and all of these religious practices would earn him entrance into the kingdom, but it's all dead religion. Apart from the new birth, apart from a changed heart, none of it mattered. This was a man who openly devoted to his religion, practiced it daily in front of many to see. Again, a dead religion. In fact, Jesus would rebuke these Pharisees for their dead religion. Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for us this morning. This is what Jesus says. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs with outward, uh, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
This is what dead religion looks like. And this was Nicodemus's condition. His heart had never been changed. See, he practiced all of these deeds, but they accomplished nothing. His works could not save him. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know this morning that your religion cannot save you. You can be the most religious person in the world and still be lost. Our salvation does not rest upon our achievements or our abilities or our accomplishments. It rests on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's our only means to salvation. It is in him that we are eternally justified. Look, it doesn't matter if you grew up in the household of faith with parents that were believers that loved you. Yes, that's great and that's wonderful. It doesn't matter if they send you to a Christian school or university. That's great and that's wonderful. Guess what? It's not salvific. It won't save, right? Because your parents have a belief in Jesus, that won't save you. God has a lot of children. He doesn't have any grandchildren. Amen, somebody. Look, you can memorize the Bible from start to finish. From Genesis to Revelation, you can attend church every week, you can feed the poor, you can visit the sick. None of those things will justify you before the Lord. That will not gain you entrance into the kingdom. Again, they're all good things, things that we should do. But Jesus tells Nicodemus here that something else is required. Something else must take place that's outside of man's ability Listen, maybe you're here this morning and all of these years you've followed the letter of the law faithfully. Maybe you've consistently practiced good works. Maybe you're committed to your spiritual disciplines of prayer and studying the word of God. Maybe you even fast in the appropriate seasons. Maybe you do all of the things. And you're here this morning and you believe that that's enough to justify you before the Lord. Friends, that's simply not the case. Nowhere does the word of God teach us that a man is justified by what he does. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Just one of many verses. For the sake of time, I only picked one. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Again, I'll read it. You don't have to go there. You can write it down. See for yourself later. Romans 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That his is God. Since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. You can't be justified by the law because it just shows us how wicked we really are. Our inability to keep the law. Furthermore, it's not about what you do. It's never been about what you do. See, this is what confused Nicodemus. The unfortunate reality is there are many just like Nicodemus filling churches across the country this morning. Those who've built their foundation and their eternal security on a lie. They think they're saved by what they do. They think they are saved because they said a prayer one time. Because I walked the aisle and had someone manipulate me to pray with them. Or because I do all of these morally righteous things daily that I'm okay. There are people who believe that they are saved and in the right standing with God, but they've never undergone the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. 
never been born again. I know this is a heavy text, and it's very challenging. It was challenging for me this week because growing up for many, many years, I was Nicodemus. I thought I was in right standing with God if I just did the right stuff, right? Don't drink, don't smoke, don't curse, right? Just be good. Ironically, I, I, I did all of those things. I wasn't good. And somehow I was a fool and thought I could still be right with God. But what I didn't understand, it, was, it wasn't about me. It's not about what I did. Right now, of course, there are fruits to regeneration, and we'll talk about that briefly. But I was just like Nicodemus. And I thought, as long as I'm good, I'm good. The Bible has plenty to say about that as well. I don't want anyone to leave here this morning under a false assumption that your works determine your status with God. Listen, your good works and moral behavior will not stand in the day of judgment. They are not sufficient to save. Entrance into the kingdom requires something more, something that originates outside of man, something that only God has the ability to do. Now, fortunately for Nicodemus and for us, Jesus tells us here in verse 3 what that is, which brings me to point number two, the declaration of Jesus. So Nicodemus has come to visit Christ, and he's confused, not sure what to make of this man named Jesus. Again, he knows that there is something about him. He's seen these miraculous signs. But Jesus isn't interested in discussing his signs. Instead, he cuts right to the heart of the matter. He gets right to the root of the issue. Let's look at verse 3 together. And it says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. At first glance, this may seem like a very odd response from the Lord Jesus. I mean, he essentially provides the answer to a question that the man never even asked. But see, this is where we uh, see the continuity between chapters 2 and chapter 3. See, if you look back at verses uh, 24, the last half of verse 24 and 25 at the end of chapter 2, and it says, because he, meaning Jesus, knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. Here's Jesus demonstrating the ability to know what's in man. Here's Jesus reading the heart of Nicodemus like an open book. He knew what Nicodemus needed most, and it wasn't a new religion. It's a new life. Nicodemus needed a new life. And so Jesus responds to him here, and he says, truly, truly. Now let's stop there for a second. Truly, truly, that phrase is only used in the New Testament in John's gospel. Now, when we see this phrase, we need to take note of that because what follows is an incredibly uh, important truth that's being introduced. Whenever you see truly, truly, take note of what follows after that. And you see, what Jesus says to Nicodemus here is of the utmost importance. I can't think of many more texts more important than this one. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
What a magnificently profound statement Jesus makes here. I mean, we could spend hours, days, weeks talking about this truth. This statement clearly lays out what is required for a man or woman to enter into the kingdom. Christ makes a monumental declaration here. He says, you must be born again. See, this is Jesus putting forth the necessity of regeneration. Jesus says it's absolutely necessary before you can see the kingdom. There must be a rebirth, one that is supernatural in origin. See, regeneration isn't a recommendation. It's a requirement. It's absolutely required. You see, as we talk about uh, this idea of regeneration, I think it's important for us to have a definition. What does it mean? How does it work? What does it look like? I think Louis Burkhoff is helpful here. And he defines regeneration this way, quote, regeneration is that act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. Did you catch that? Burkhoff says that our souls are made holy. That would imply that our souls naturally are unholy from birth. That means that our very nature must be changed by God. Regeneration or the new birth speaks of a supernatural transformation that must take place, one that changes the very disposition of our hearts, our minds, our souls. You see, by very, our very nature, we're in opposition to God. We're his opponents. We choose to willfully rebel and reject him. See, we're opponents of the Lord Jesus. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And what can a dead man do to raise himself to life? Go ahead, I'll wait. The answer is nothing. Dead man can't bring himself to life. Listen, even our best works, our most committed efforts can do nothing to alter what's been passed down to us by our original parents, and that's our sinful DNA. Listen, do you understand the implications of what Jesus is saying here? And this means that in and of ourselves, we do not have any ability as natural-born men and women to do anything to justify ourselves before the Lord or earn our place in the kingdom. We need a new nature, a new life, a second birth. Listen to Nicodemus, this must be earth shattering. This must have crushed this man. This man who had devoted himself to studying and observing the law. He'd abided by all the traditions that had been passed down to God's people. He even implemented some of his own. I mean, he was a Jew born of the appropriate ancestry, the right bloodline. He joined the most religious sect. He knew the word of God. He'd done everything he deemed to be right and necessary to please the Lord. And yet Jesus is telling him that he is outside of the kingdom. In fact, what is required for a man to enter the kingdom was outside of Nicodemus's capabilities. And that flies in the face of everything this Pharisee knew. All he knew was doing, doing, doing. That's what he'd been raised on, striving daily and toiling with all his might. 
to diligently observe the law and the things that his religion demanded of him. And all of it was for nothing. All of it left him outside of the kingdom. See, I think there's a verse that most of us are probably familiar with here. And I think it's germane to our conversation because it addresses the false ideology that doing religious things in the name of the Lord is somehow proof that you've been born again. And this text comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Again, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for us. These are the words of the Lord Jesus, staggering words here. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, do you see what's happening right there? The emphasis is on all that they did. Man, we prophesied. We cast out demons. We did good works. We performed miracles. Look at all we did. Jesus said, I don't know you because it's not about what you do. It's not about our performances. It's not about this doing, doing, doing. Jesus states it plainly here, you must be born again. Now, it's interesting to note the Greek that's used here. The Greek word used that's translated again really has two meanings. As it's translated here to mean again, so to do something a second time, right? But it's also translated as from above. In fact, this same word is used in the Gospel of John two other times. In John chapter 3, verse 31, which says, He who comes from above is above all. Also in John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, it says, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You have no authority over me at all unless it is given you from above. Don't miss the significance of that. Don't miss what is happening here. See, what's being communicated to us is that the new birth is something that cannot be brought about by our own volition. It is a vertical birth, a birth from above, a birth of divine origin. It is completely void of any human effort. I think Charles Spurgeon is helpful here as well, known as the Prince Prince of Preachers. This is from a sermon that he delivered in May of 1857 on this very text, on this very topic of regeneration. And this is what he says, quote, Neither is a man regenerated by his own exertions. A man may reform himself very much, and that is well and good. Let all do that. A man may cast away many vices, forsake many lusts in which he indulged, And conquer evil habits, but no man in the world can make himself be born in God. Though he should struggle ever so nobly, 
he could never accomplish what is beyond his power, end quote. End quote. What a great quote that is. And what a sobering reminder that is. Really a humbling reminder to any of us who exercise the arrogance or the pride to think that we somehow have made ourselves be born and alive in God. Jesus says you must be born again. We must experience a second birth. The first birth is only sufficient to condemn a man. Now, I'm sure Nicodemus was confused by this point. We know that because look at the way he responds in verse 4. Let's look at verse 4 together. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, obviously, Nicodemus only understood what Jesus was speaking of about a birth, but in a simpler fashion. So he understood that there was something, another birth that needed to happen, but he doesn't quite understand what Jesus is communicating here. He's only thinking as a natural man would. Nicodemus is focused only on the physical birth. Nicodemus wants to know, how, how can I be reborn? Can I enter into my mother's womb again and be born a second time? He didn't understand what Jesus was saying. He took the Lord's words literally. You see, Nicodemus only had eyes to see things one way. That's why Jesus says, apart from being born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. See, brothers and sisters, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, this is every single one of us. Spiritually blind. Unable to comprehend the glories of Christ. As natural men and women, we cannot see him as anything more than a miracle-working moral teacher. Through the new birth, though, God gives us eyes to see and hearts that believe. You see, the spirit at work in man always testifies to the magnificence of Christ. It illuminates him for who he is. That's the work of the Spirit in a dead and carnal man. You see, this was Nicodemus here. He was a dead man walking. He could not see. He needed a new heart. He needed a new life. He needed new eyes. See, the way that Nicodemus interpreted everything was a result of this framework that he had put together surrounding human effort. But here Jesus lays waste to that framework. That works-based system, Jesus kills it. Brothers and sisters, there is a requirement. There is something that must be done for you to enter into the kingdom, but it's not based on your effort. It's not based on your personal choice or exercising your will. Look, if we go back to John chapter 1, the Apostle John's kind of touched on this already. If you go back to John chapter 1, we look at verses 11 through 13. I'll just read them for us briefly. It says, he, talking about Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, this new birth that is required is a 
divinely miraculous occurrence. And as Nicodemus would soon find out, this new birth is only possible when the Spirit of God is working within the soul of a man. Which leads me to point number three, the duty of the Spirit, the duty of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verses five through eight. And then Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So our friend Nicodemus is confused. However, Jesus doesn't back off from what he's saying here. In fact, he further emphasizes the declaration that he has made, that you must be born again. Verse 5, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Now, let's stop right there for a second, because this is important for us to kind of unpack briefly, right? This is a verse that has been interpreted in many different ways. Over the years, there's been a lot of debates about what Jesus is actually saying here. I think it's clear what Jesus means when he says, born of the Spirit, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But what does it mean when Jesus says, born of water? This has been a great topic of debate over the years. What is Jesus saying, born of water? I'm going to give you a couple of interpretations that are out there, then I'm going to tell you where I land. I'll let you make your own decision. Is that fair? Fair enough. You guys with me? Amen. All right. So number one, here's, again, just a couple of interpretations there. Some people will lean towards and say that being born of water is referring to your physical birth, right? If you think about a baby in the womb, right, they're surrounded by the amniotic fluid, right? And then when a woman goes into labor, what do we say? Her water breaks, right? So some people will say, oh, Jesus is saying that you must be physically born, right? That's where the water part comes from. So you have to have a physical birth, but you also must have this spiritual birth as well. And that's all fine and well. That can be possibly a helpful interpretation. However, I think it would be strange for Jesus to say that you must be born physically, I mean, how else are you going to be born again spiritually if you didn't exist in the first place? If you weren't born physically to begin with, right? If you never existed. So again, that could be a helpful interpretation. That's not where I land. All right, number two, here's another one. Being born of of water, some people will say this is referring to baptism, right? There are those who believe that baptism is salvific, that a man's sins are washed away when he is baptized. Listen, friends, I want to tell you, this is one I will rebuke sharply because nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that baptism saved, right? If you don't believe that, look no further than the thief on the cross. I don't think that Jesus said, hey, brothers, do you mind if we take this dude down and dunk him real quick before you crucify him? No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no baptism necessary. So I don't think that that is an accurate interpretation, saying that Jesus is telling this man, especially a man like Nicodemus, who clung to all of these rituals and customs and traditions and doing, doing, doing. 
I don't think Jesus would tell him that yet another ritual is what he needed in order to be saved. So I don't think that that's an accurate interpretation as well. There's a couple more out there. There are those who say, oh, Jesus is referring to John's baptism, right? The baptism of repentance. There are those who say that Jesus is pointing towards ritual cleansings from the nation of Israel, all of these things that have been passed down. That's not where I land. So the question is, well, what do you think it means? Where, where are we going to land with this thing, right? So what do I believe that Jesus is saying here? Well, I think remembering the context of this conversation and who Jesus is talking to is helpful for us to interpret this text. Look, again, if you drop down to verse 10, you see that Jesus essentially is berating and rebuking Nicodemus for not understanding these things. See, as a learned teacher of the scriptures, this is something that Nicodemus should have been familiar with. So this would suggest that what Jesus is saying is something that Nicodemus could have studied in the Old Testament. So what do we find in the Old Testament that's helpful to translate and interpret this text? Listen, water was often used figuratively in the Old Testament. And it mostly refers to cleansing or renewal, especially when it's in conjunction with the Spirit. I think the best example of this that we could point to is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. Again, you don't have to turn there. I will read this for us. And it reads, and this is the Lord speaking to his people. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all the idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. So we see that God is doing a cleansing work, right? But he's also imparting the spirit to his people, right? We see that both parts are happening here. So I think that is a helpful way for us to interpret the text, to interpret being born of water as God's work of cleansing a man and then imparting the spirit to him, right? I think commentator D.A. Carson is helpful here as he commentates on this text in Ezekiel 36. He says, most important, quote, most important in Ezekiel 36, 25, 7, where water and spirit come together so forcefully the first to signify cleansing from impurity, and the second to depict the transformation of the heart that will enable people to follow God wholly. Now, I know that's a lot to take in on a Sunday morning. So what I would encourage you to do is study the text for yourself and make your own determination. Say, okay, yeah, I think that's right, or no, maybe I don't agree with that. Study it for yourselves, right? I'm only putting forth what I believe to be an accurate assessment of what the text is saying, especially because Jesus doesn't uh, exposit that further for us, right? He assumes that Nicodemus should understand what is being said to him. So given that context, I believe that that is the most accurate way to describe what is meant by being born of water. It is the new birth that cleanses and renews us. It's a spiritual washing of the sinner's soul. 
Ultimately, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says you must be born of water and the Spirit. That's why the word Spirit is capitalized there. Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to a remarkable reality about regeneration. And he's saying it's totally the work of the Holy Spirit. It's something that God must do. Listen, brothers and sisters, again, we cannot change our nature. We have no ability to manufacture or bring about the new birth. I Meaning Jesus, has, he puts it in simple terms here. Even take what Nicodemus said. I want you to think for a minute. What did you do to be born the first time? What part did you play in your physical birth? Somebody say it louder. You, you didn't do anything, right? Your mama did all the work. You did nothing to be born the first time. You just existed. Suddenly, you were here. So you had no ability, no part to play in your physical birth. What makes you think you can play a part in your spiritual birth? You can't call that to be. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, man, praise God for that reality. Praise God for his redeeming work this morning. Listen, I think this is something that's often overlooked as well. We glorify God, the Father. We give praise to God, the Son. But I think we sometimes overlook the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. We forget that the Holy Spirit is the agent in regeneration. Right? Sometimes I hear people share their testimony, and they share it as if they regenerated themselves as if they did all the work. Look, I could sooner flap my arms and fly to the moon than I could rebirth myself. It is not a human possibility. That's why Jesus says here in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Listen, what does flesh produce? Only more flesh. All of your efforts, all of your works can't produce the Spirit of God. You can only produce more flesh. John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Period. End of discussion. We must be reborn by the power of the Spirit, not the power of the mind or the flesh. Listen, this is unsettling for a lot of people because we want to be the captains of our souls, don't we? We want to control our own destiny. So when you take it out of my hands and put it in the hands of this great and divine creator, and I have no bearing over it, man, I can't think of anything more unnerving than that. I don't like it. It's unsettling to me. We want to be sovereign over ourselves. Think about Nicodemus, man, his mind is probably blown. Jesus is telling this man who had spent his whole life doing and doing and doing. That's all he'd ever known. The only way into the kingdom is through the supernatural work of the Spirit. But you play no part in that. See, Jesus, again, he doesn't back off from this. In fact, he really doubles down on it. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born 
of the Spirit. So here Jesus gives Nicodemus another illustration that also takes the power of regeneration out of the hands and ability of man and places it on the power of the Spirit. Jesus says, don't marvel at this, Nicodemus. Don't marvel that I've told you you must be born again. Simply consider the wind. Who can control the wind? Only God, right? When we go outside on a windy day, you can feel the wind. You can see its effects, but you can't control it. You can't manipulate it. You can't make it blow the way you want it to blow. It's out of our control. And Jesus says it's the same thing with the Spirit. There are evidence that the Spirit's at work. The Spirit has its power. It has its effect. But you can't control it. Nicodemus, it's out of your hands. Brothers and sisters, the power of the Holy Spirit is out of your hands. That's God's work. The new birth is not something you produce. It's something God produces in you. I think 1 Peter 1.3 is an encouraging reminder of God's sovereign work over regeneration. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, he, God, has caused us to be born again. The Lord is the initiator, the originator, the orchestrator of this new birth. It's all by his power and according to his grace. See, as we prepare to close our time here together this morning, there's a, another quote that I want to share from a great theologian, one of my favorites of all time, a gentleman named R.C. Sproul. I'm sure some of you are familiar with Dr. Sproul, who has now gone on to be with the Lord. And this is what he says about regeneration. Quote, regeneration is the act of God alone in which he renews the human heart, making it alive when it was dead. In regeneration, God acts at the origin and deepest point of the human person. It is the immediate supernatural work of the Holy Spirit wrought in us. Its effect is to quicken us to spiritual life from spiritual death. It changes the disposition of our souls, inclining our hearts to God, end quote. Brothers and sisters, that is what must happen before man may enter into the kingdom of God. Listen, I think as we close, it's important to point out that this new birth, what happens, it's not just something that happens on a superficial or surface level, right? It's more than just the external. It's not just changing your behaviors. It's not just about doing all of these things. Again, the new birth changes your very nature. It changes your heart, your soul, your mind. It's something that happens internally from a divine force externally. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're beginning to have some questions. Maybe you're like, am I actually born again? Maybe you're questioning that. Maybe you're not sure. I think one of the greatest evidences that we can point to that a person has truly been born again is that you hate the sin that you once loved, that you've repented 
that not just conviction of sin, as Pastor Gabe mentioned last week, but also that there is repentance of sin, that your heart, your mind has been changed towards the sinful acts that you once loved and desired. Has God accomplished that work in you? Again, not just on a surface level. Do you fight daily against your sin, waging war against it? Not only that, is your heart truly alive to the glories of Christ? Do you love the Lord? And I don't mean, yeah, I love him because look at all the stuff I'm doing. No, is your heart's posture and position uh, uh, one of affection towards God, genuinely? And not just towards God, but towards your neighbor as well, towards your family members, towards your coworkers? Or are you simply going through the motions? Are you banking on the stuff that you do without ever experiencing the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, never being changed internally? If you're here this morning and you have questions, you say, man, I I don't know if I'm born again. Maybe I am. I'm not. I want to be. We would love to talk to you before you get out of here. And I would love to encourage you to start by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, believing in him. And praying and asking God to do the work that only he can. Of changing your heart, renewing your mind, rescuing your soul. I want to encourage you to turn to the Lord. He doesn't turn away those who seek him earnestly. Pray for the spirit to be at work in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to fellowship together this morning. God, we're thankful for even the ways that this text has been challenging, Lord, to make us each each question ourselves and uh, whether we have been born again. Father, we're actually thankful. I am thankful that it is all by your hand because I could never rebirth myself. I could never bring myself to be in the right standing before you. So, Father, I thank you for the work that you've done and the work that you've yet to do. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning under the sound of my voice, that hasn't been brought to new life by the power of the Spirit, that, God, you would be at work doing that in them today. Father, don't let them leave this place the same way that they came in. Father, I pray that you would do the work of bringing dead men to life this morning. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful that you love us, thankful for the work of the Spirit. God, I pray that with the rest of the time we have together today, that we would honor you. For Jesus, you alone are worthy. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.